Um, it's, uh, it's been a pleasure to worship with you this morning. Um, thank you again for, uh, for being here. Um, I first had the privilege of hearing uh, Don McLaughlin when I was but a wee lad. <laughs> when I was a teenager at Winterfest in the early 90s, which is in Gatlinburg, Tennessee. It's a big, uh, it's a big youth conference that draws, I don't know, 16 or 18,000. There's one in Texas now because it's just grown so much. And I first heard Don way back then when I was a teenager. And, you know, I had felt God's call to ministry at an early age in seventh grade, as I've shared with you before. And, you know, I'm a seventh grader listening to this guy speak, and I was just taken in by his words, uh, and I have been over the years. And then uh, when I was still living in Atlanta, I was working for the North Cobb Church, and I was getting ready to go back to school, and then I heard that that Don was coming to North Atlanta as I was leaving Atlanta, and I was really bummed out about that. And so I went off to Alabama, and I was there for several years doing school and whatnot, and about uh, a year, year and a half ago, uh, I had an opportunity to go to Nashville and speak uh, or to, to preach in a, in a workshop that, uh, that I think I've shared with you before at Lipscomb. And it's done in like a, like a cohort thing. It's part of the Doctorate of Ministry program, which Don is, is getting ready to enter in just a few, uh, few months, actually. Um, but, you know, we had to prepare these messages, and we had to preach to each other, and we had to preach to our peers and, and to this, this big-time preaching professor and then we had to be subject to something that guys like me and Don are not used to and really don't like and that's immediate critique of our sermons I would rather find out on the internet how bad it is (laughs) I don't want to find out immediately how bad it is Um, but so we had to do that and so Don and I were in this group together and so uh, I got to uh, to to connect with him uh, and he has been just such a blessing to me. Uh, we're also in the same uh, cohort in Nashville now as, as I'm working on my Master of Divinity and Don is getting ready to go into this Doctorate of Ministry program. Uh, he, and, and you know Jovan, uh, Jovan and I and Don, we have roomed together as we've gone up to Nashville. And so we've had some just incredible times of, of sharing and talking about the church and uh, Don has been such an encouragement to me in my life uh, that, I, that I wanted you to hear from him. Uh, our leadership met last night at my house, and he just poured into us for about an hour and a half, and it was such a blessing as he helped us to, uh, to vision some things and identify some, some leaders which are sitting in this audience, so be ready to be tapped on the shoulder because uh, that's, that's coming, because we've identified several leaders in this church as, as we want to, to move forward. Um, and I'm just, I'm so honored that, that Don would come. I, I, Tim and I were sitting in grassroots, and we were talking about seeing if he would come down, and I just shot him a text, and like within two minutes, he's like, yeah, just pick a date, tell me, and I'll be there. And so, you know, he just kind of made room for us in his, his very, very busy schedule. Don is the, uh, he's the senior minister at, at North Atlanta, which is a little smaller than our church, um, by, by not at all, not even a little bit smaller than our church. It is the biggest church, probably I mean, what, about the southeast, I'm imagining. 
It's, um, but uh, Don's been there for, what, 20 years? And uh, just done an outstanding ministry there. He has done so much for racial reconciliation, not just in Atlanta, but throughout our nation. And he's going to be, you know, he's, he's, he's written a book about it, and I won't say anything about it because I'm sure he's going to mention that in just a few minutes. Um, but uh, I'm so honored. Um, would you please welcome my friend, my brother, Don McLaughlin. Thanks, buddy. Man, it's good to be with you this morning. And uh, we good on this? Sound good? Okay. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank you for coming. Wow. I was so excited to come. Like you said, you know, I've been, ro- we've been rooming together. So try to imagine this, you know, Jovan and Jason and, and uh, re- rooming in the, uh, together. And it gives you an opportunity to get to know people when you room together for a week in such intense circumstances. Uh, when we went up there, you know, I mean, going to college, you know, you go to school and, you know, what do you go to school? You know, a few classes a day or whatever, right? Well, you go to these intensives and they start at eight in the morning and they end about eight at night. And, uh, man, for my old bones, that was a long day, you know? And, uh, so I was, uh, I'm just so pleased to be with you. What I want to do is I'd ask you to turn in your Bibles to Romans, turn to Romans chapter eight. Uh, I love this thing. You're going to be there in a few moments. I want you to think with me for a few moments about the challenges in your life that have been the hardest to overcome. And I want to frame this beyond an event. Now let me give you an example of what I'm talking about. Some of you in this room have overcome cancer. You've had people in your family overcame cancer. And for many of you, there is this residual concern that it would return. When someone has a huge cardiac event, one of the questions is, was that a one-off, right? But there's something different when someone you love did not survive. So someone had cancer and you prayed and they didn't survive. Someone had a cardiac event and they didn't survive. One of my friends who's a psychologist in Atlanta was talking about suicide. And she said, you know, oftentimes when someone has a heart attack and they survive, we say, man, they had a heart attack, but they made it. She said, just like some people die of a heart attack, some people die of a mental attack. They don't survive it. And the people that are left have to figure out what to do with that. And so when we talk about being more than conquerors, it's easier to think in terms of, man, I had that heart event, I had that cancer, and we beat it. And then, you know, you're out there and you're at the 5K and you're raising money for it and everyone's more than conquerors. But there's people in all of those events who don't feel exactly the same way because their loved one didn't make it. So what they've got to conquer feels very different. Feels very different. You know, I think in terms of Jesus going to this little town, the, widow, the, the story of Nain, and there's this, the Bible sets up the scene, there's a widow. And then the, the death that she's dealing with right now is her only son. So it really sets up this scene, and Jesus comes in and raises her son from the dead. And the Bible says that the people praise God and said, God has come to help his people. God has come to help his people. But if you remember, in the case of Lazarus, He was buried in the tomb for four days, and when Jesus got to town, the two sisters 
that he loved said, well, if you'd have been here. So there isn't a cheering crowd. There's kind of that disappointed, why did you leave us in such a situation? So what I want to just frame is, is when you think about being more than conquerors, it might just feel different person to person, situation to situation. So maybe what we need to step back and say, well, why in the world do we need an assurance that we'll win? Why do we need that assurance? So I'm going to back up in my own life. Uh, I grew up in uh, Portland, Oregon, and we didn't go to church. We were ch- well, we did. Get this. We would go on Easter and Christmas, right? And people would joke and call it the Holly Lily crowd. You see Holly at Christmas and Lily at Easter, you know? So you're the Holly Lily crowd. But my mom and dad, uh, when I was in elementary school, my parents started going to church. Uh, my mom was baptized first, then my dad. And this kind of set us in motion. But bear in mind, I'd already become bilingual by that point. What I mean by bilingual is I had language that my buddies and I used when we were with each other, uh, language out on the construction site that I didn't use with my grandma and stuff like that, right? So I've got these two worlds. My dad accused my brother and I one time that we could not introduce ourselves without cussing. And, and I was sure that couldn't be true, but I did notice a few times it happened. So I go away to college, become a Christian, and now I've got to figure out what to do with this foul mouth. And I, I don't know if any of you in here have struggled with this, but boy, something like that can get a hold of you. It's kind of like an automatic response. You know, let me tell you how bad it was. I was my dad owned a construction company. I was driving truck for him, had a low boy, one of those big old long traders, and I pulled out in Portland, and I knew I did not go into that other person's lane. I knew I didn't. I knew I made the turn right. They honked anyway. So without even looking, I just flipped him the bird, turned into, and it's my mom and dad's preacher, Scott Mitchell. True story. <laughs> So I just want to be fair of how bad it was, right? Oh, my goodness. So I go away to college, uh, November uh, 17th, 1981, baptized into Christ. The guy that baptized me, Byron Fike, he's preaching at this little church. You're talking about church size. Reunion Sunday, that church was 20 people. Reunion Sunday, right? I mean, it's a very small church out in the country. And uh, my second sermon, I got wound up as speaking, and I meant to say, shoot. Dead center in the middle of the sermon. And I mean, that's an awkward moment, man. Let me tell you, man. I mean, I'm scared to death. I can't even believe it's happened. I mean, my heart stopped beating. I can't even believe it's happened. And people are shocked, you know. We had this older guy, L.C. Cooper, and he's adjusting his hearing aid, hoping that'll go away, you know. And we had one teenager, one, one teenager, he just fell over on the back road, just laughing his head off. And I am absolutely petrified that this has happened. But Ruby Taylor, Ruby Taylor, Ruby and Theodore Taylor, older couple, sitting right in the front row. She just looked up and said, just keep on preaching, honey. And I said, not today. Clean up a little bit. But what I'm, you see what I'm saying? When you talk about a victory, it's different when your victory you're working on is an event versus something that, that might take your whole life. So when we read in Romans chapter 8, and he fires off that opening, victory celebration there is now no condemnation for those that are in christ jesus listen carefully that's the event god did something in christ you came on to it through his grace and the event of the cross changed the world no one has to go back and do that again right this is the message of the book of hebrews 
what God did at the cross, is a, it, it's the thing everything was leading up to, and it's the thing that changed everything after. It will never be done again because there's only one that needed to do it. There's only one time it needed to be done. It's an event. It's done. But all, all of the rest of Romans chapter 8 is about the long haul. He starts with the event and says, you do need to realize you don't actually ever for the rest of your life have to worry about what God did for you at the cross. You never have to worry if God is capable of making you acceptable to the Father. Never have to worry about that. You never have to worry if God did a good enough job cleaning up your temple so the Holy Spirit could dwell in it. You never have to worry about that because there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus for what could not be done on this side was done from that side. It's an event and it's done. And where do you go from there? Well, Paul says, now listen, here's part of our problem. When the event happened on your behalf by God, guess what? You are still in a body. You are still living in a physical body. You're still dealing with your mind, right? You still got stuff that happened in how you grew up. That's still hanging on to you, right? Yeah, any of you ever got gas spilled on some clothing and that, that smell? You can take that smell. Well, what we know is, is even though our insides are cleaned up because of Jesus at the cross, we still got that smell of life about us. And we know we struggle with these things. So he says, so what would you do about that? He said, well, some of you might think to yourself, well, what I need to do is kind of dip into the flesh harder. I got to be better. I got to obey more. I got to do this, got to do this, got to do this. He said, how's that working for you? How's that going for you getting yourself all cleaned up all on your own? You say, well, it's killing me. I'll tell you the truth, it's killing me. How many times have you, like me, think about the cussing illustration, prayed to God, Lord, please forgive me. I'll never do it again. And whether it was a few hours, a few days, or a few years, you found your flesh orbiting that sin again. So he said, if you're going to make any headway, you've got to lean into the Spirit. Why? Well, because what the Spirit is doing all the way through the course of your life, the Spirit's trying to get your attention. The Spirit's trying to do two things with you. The Spirit's trying to say, you do remember the event, right? You do remember the event, right? And you know the words with which God framed that event. He said, so I so loved you, I gave my only son. I was trying to say something to you. The cross of Jesus Christ is linguistic. It is God's language. He's trying to say something to you. He's trying to speak in a language you can get. Even if you never learned Hebrew or Greek or Aramaic, you look at the cross, you got it. God says, I love you in a million different languages, and everyone gets it. The cross is the precursor to Pentecost. When God spoke at the cross, everyone got it. There it is. So when a heart opens up to the cross, what do you realize? Oh, how he loved me. So the Spirit says, you, you, you do remember the cross was for you, right? Right? So, so what are you doing now? Well, I'm trying to live like I really love the Lord. You're trying to live like, like you love the Lord. What's that look like? Oh, I'm going to be better. 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 He might say, you know, why don't we approach that a little differently? Why don't you approach it like this? Lord, make more room in my heart for you. Make more room in my heart for you. Lord, make more room in my mind for you. 
Lord, help me to recognize that what you did at the cross was a statement of my value, my capacity, my purpose. That you have so much, you have more faith in me than I have in me. So you did something at the cross that says you're better than you think you are. You're more capable than you think you are. God says, I know more about you than you know about you. Let's do this together. Don't fight it over there on your own. You'll never make it. Let my spirit live in you and let my spirit speak to you. Let my spirit remind you that you can call me Father. Romans 8 tells us that we don't just call him Father like in, yes, sir. We call him Father like Daddy, Abba Father, right? We were given this right. So then he says, let me tell you this. How many of you going through hard times? Hard times? Tell me about your hard times. Where do you want me to start? Well, I'm going through grief. I lost a loved one. I'm going through sickness. I'm dealing with something inside my body. I'm going through sickness. I'm dealing with something in somebody else's body. I'm going through a prodigal parent, a prodigal child, a prodigal friend. All of those are deep wounds. Anyone who's had to deal with a prodigal child know it changes everything about the way you think about life. It changes how you do or do not sleep. It changes whether you eat and enjoy it. It changes everything about your life. In Romans chapter 8, he says, that's kind of like groaning through life. He said, even when you're doing well, the groan is not far away. I remember this song. It's uh, the, uh, one of the lines in the songs is, my heart will choose to say, blessed be your name. And one of the verses talks about when the sun's shining, I'll bless your name. One of them says, when I'm in the desert place, I'll bless your name. For a year and a half in the mid-2000s, I could not sing that song. I just had to listen to you sing it. My heart was so broken over events that had happened in our family, I couldn't even sing the song. I'll bet some of you know what it's like to hit a word in a song and you can't go forward without crying. So in Romans 8, he says, that's like groaning. But he said, if you listen carefully, you're not the only one groaning. All creation is groaning with you. All around the world, the world is groaning. Oh, it can be when you see forests uh, uh, mowed down for, for uh, 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 indiscriminate economic reasons. It can be when you see a garbage bin out in the middle of the Pacific Ocean the size of a state because people are throwing trash in the ocean. You can look at what's going on. Any of you that have seen, watched these films, I've been to Beijing and places like that, where even on a bright day, you can't even see the air. There's so much smog. And creation is groaning in all of that. But he said, believe me, the greater part of creation that has just gripped God's heart is when you're groaning. And he said, let me tell you how much it's gripped him. The Holy Spirit hears it, translates it, and tells the Father how much you're hurting. But then he finally gets us to this phrase where we in Romans 8 can breathe just for a moment. He says, but you do realize that in all things, God is at work for the good of those that love him and are called according to his purpose. For those who he foreknew, he predestined to become conformed to the image of, of his son.
So we kind of step back a little bit and realize he never wastes our suffering. He never misses how much we're hurting. The echoes of our groan are not caught up in sound panels in heaven so they drift off into the walls. They're kept in the heart of God. That's why in Revelation 8 it says that our prayers are like incense that God breathes into him. And then we come to this passage knowing all these things were more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all of that, we're winning? We're actually winning in all of that? How in the world could we possibly be winning? We have five children. So our youngest is 27, our only girl. She has four older brothers. When the boys were young, we would play Monopoly. Any of you remember playing Monopoly? You kind of got the board in your head, right? So try to imagine you got these four boys and me. We're playing Monopoly, right? So one time we're playing Monopoly in the bedroom and all the boys are gathered around it. And our youngest son, who, you know, he's, he's on the bottom end, he is getting hammered by his older brother. And I mean, there's hotels gone up all over the board, right? He has none, right? And finally, he, he's crying, and he gets up and runs out of the room and runs over to another bedroom. So we call a timeout in the game. I shuffle down the hallway. I find him. He's crying. He's mad, right, because he's losing. I walk in there, and I said, what's the matter? It's not fair. He said, my older brothers know the game better, and they know how to do all of this. And he's crying and wailing and wailing and wailing, and finally he gets done. And I said, let me ask you something. You run out of money? No, sir. I said, you got plenty of money, right? Yes, sir. I said, you know why you got money? No, sir. Because your daddy's a banker. I'd been slipping him $500 bills throughout the game. Every, every time I'd give him cash back, he's making more money. He'd, he'd land on boardwalk. He's making money, man. And he, his eyes got real big, and then he smiled a little bit. And I said, as long as your daddy's the banker, you're in the game. <laughs> the reason that we're winning is our daddy is the banker. So see, whatever it looks like, he said, no, no, no. You're more than conquerors, not because of what you can accomplish in the flesh. It's because someone loves you. That's why you're that's why you're winning. Now look at what else he has to say to us. He says, for I'm convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to do what? Slow me down on the track of life. Nothing going to slow me down. I got a name it and claim it attitude here. and then. Well, you know what's fascinating? You can name it and claim it, and cancer can still find you. 
You can name it and claim it, and cocaine can show up in your kid's system. You can name it and claim it, and someone you love can get killed in a freak accident. It does not say in all these things we're more than conquerors and nothing to ever slow you down on the track of life. What it says is, is you will never go through the valley of the shadow of death by yourself because you will never be separated from the love of God. It's never going to happen. So when you're looking at that, he says, you understand that what happened at the cross is when you brought your sin, I took you and your sin into myself. Jesus says, I became you on that cross. You in me, I in you. That's John 17 prayer. We brought ourselves together in such union that every groan you ever uttered, everything that made your system shudder, every hurt you've had, every time you woke up in the middle of the night and couldn't stand who you were or couldn't stand who someone you loved had become, he said i was there with you i felt it i lived it i'm in you i'm going through it with you nothing can separate you from the love of god that is in christ jesus our lord absolutely nothing that is why we're more than conquerors so i started thinking through this several years ago what i began to wonder about was this i began to wonder if the ultimate weapon that would do in humanity was hate, was it eventually going to become so strong that it would do us in? Many of us were introduced to tsunamis through the Indian Ocean tsunami. And the reason is because it was caught on camera so mightily. Many of us had never seen destruction like that before. We didn't know that could happen. That in a few seconds, actually a few minutes, that that much water could come inland and kill a almost a quarter of a million people within just moments, right? It shocked us. And then you remember it happened again off of Japan's coast, and the cameras there caught it all. And you're watching this destruction that just nothing can stop it. It just absolutely doesn't matter. Nothing is enough to stop it. I begin to wonder if hate would be like a tsunami that would eventually roll over the top of, of humanity. I begin to wonder that. Now, here's what I think. I want to be candid about this. I think my age played into that. I think my age played into it. Because when I was a little boy, we had three television channels, and then we got a fourth one, which was big deal, right? So we had ABC, NBC, CBS, and whatever your local was. So out in Portland, Oregon, it was KPTV Channel 12. Think about the news. Think about the news. What was it? It was an evening event. We had the evening news. Remember this? And many families wrapped their schedules around the evening news. My dad owned a construction company, so it mattered about the weather. So we're watching the evening news. My mom lives out in Colorado where four channels still hadn't been beaten where she lives, right? So I can guarantee you, if I call her at a certain time of the day, what am I going to hear out in the background of her telephone? I'm going to hear the evening news, which is going to be local, and then national news. And then something shifted. 24-hour news. Instead of at night, you remember those old televisions where you hit the off button and you wait for that dot to disappear in the middle, right? Right? And you remember some of the stations had the flag on and the Pledge of Allegiance or, or the National Anthem would play? Well, see, that's all gone, isn't it? It's 24-hour news. It's round the clock. And there can be a tragedy anywhere in the world on the remotest corner, 
And it becomes such an overload in our lives that we find ourselves getting compassion fatigue. We are worn out by the anxiousness of our world. And people start telling us that here's the deal. The only way you're going to survive is you've got to figure out who to hate. You've got to figure out who to hate. You've got to figure out who to blame. If something bad happens in a community, don't think about it. Just choose someone to blame and move on. Why? Because you don't have the emotional bandwidth to deal with all this tragedy. Well, that began to bother me a lot because I began to see how it played out in people's lives. I began to realize that this switchblade hate, follow what I mean by that? Switchblade hate. All of a sudden, someone take action on switchblade hate. And the next thing you know, someone's dead in a parking lot. Someone's dead on a street. This last week up in Atlanta, a guy that works at a Christian radio station got gunned down out on the freeway in a road raid incident where he was not in the road raid incident. He just took the bullet. And now he's dead and he's going to have a dad. This switchblade hate is absolutely killing us. Jesus said, well, you do realize I have an answer for that. The only way to end hate is through love. So that sent me on a journey. That journey took me from the middle of 2013 till now. I went back and went through Scripture and said, so what's God trying to tell us about his love? And I stumbled onto something. And I want you to think about it with me. Just think this with me. Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world. Revelation 13, 8. 1 Peter chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 1. If God so loved the world that he gave his only son, but Jesus is the lamb that was slain before the foundation of the world, when did God start loving the world? He started loving the world before he created it. So what did God do first? He loved first. That's what he did first. Before he created, before he commanded, before he called them out, before he held them accountable, before he expelled them from the garden, before he redeemed them, before he did any of that, he loved them first. Because for God so loved the world, he gave his only son. If his son is the lamb slain before the foundation of the world, he had to love us before he made us. He had to love us before he made us. Well, doesn't this make sense? Because the Bible says in 1 John 4, 7, and 8 that God is love. What else could he have done? If God is love, he had to love us first. So then we come to 1 John 4, 19 and 20. It says that we love because he first loved us. So God says, well, let me tell you how to approach this. What I want you to do is I want you to follow me into a default mode of life. Love first. So before you allow anything else to take control of what you end up doing, love first. There's a fascinating book. Uh, The name of the book is Thinking Fast and Slow. That's the name of the book. It's worth reading. Thinking fast and slow. And in the book, he 
boils down our thought processes to two. And you can guess by the title, fast and slow. <laughs> I guess I led too much into that to have much surprise there, right? He said fast thinking is our impulses. And you and I know we wouldn't be alive if we didn't have fast thinking. Because what does fast thinking do? Fast thinking is where you start to step off of something, you feel your balance move, and you step back. Fast thinking is when you hear a horn, a horn honk, you didn't see a car, you jump back. Fast thinking happens so quickly that it saves you before you had time to think about how to save yourself. Fast thinking is a reaction, right? And the way God created your beautiful brain with your amygdala is it thinks fast, and that's why you're still alive. You actually need fast thinking or you wouldn't be here. So if you could think about it this way, fast thinking is impulse. Just like that. But how many of you have noticed that not all your impulses are good? Right? So when I throw up my hand to flip the bird at, at somebody, well, that's not a good impulse. Right? Or when I judge someone, I see them do something and I judge them. When I do switchblade hate, that's not a good impulse. But watch this. Slow thinking, slow thinking is when I have the opportunity to step back and see a bigger picture and use discernment. Ah, well, that's not all there was to that situation. There was more to that situation. There's more to see here than just that. So now think with me about 2 Corinthians chapter 10, where the Bible says that we take our thoughts captive and make them obedient to Christ. Put these two together. My slow, spirit-led mind takes captive my impulses and make them obedient to Christ. So my stinking thinking is not going away. Those impulses are not going away but the Holy Spirit can teach me what to do with them. So he says, listen, you're never separated from the love of God. How many of you felt like you were separated from the love of God? You see? So you can feel like you're separated from the love of God. What are you going to do with that? What are you going to do with that fast thinking? Are you going to allow the bigger story to come back around that fast thinking and wrap it back up and say, no, you're not separated from the love of God I heard a story this lady was telling me he mentioned about our journey in in race relations this lady had grown up in Mississippi and she didn't even realize all of the the the, the uh, internal racism that had been built up in her she's a wonderful Christian person she gets married they moved to Rolla Missouri and it's the first time she'd ever worshiped in a church that had both black and white members in the same church never been through that before that's when she realized how deeply embedded in her that racism was. Catch this. So she's telling this story. She's telling this story to me. She said, I would actually shake hands with one of our darker skinned members. And then, as I was taught as a child, I would go to the bathroom and wash my hands and ball my eyes out. I knew I was wrong. And this is what had been embedded me, in me. I said, what'd you do? She said, I continued to grow and grow and grow and grow and grow till God removed that from me. Now, what was she being honest about? 
fast thinking, impulse, right? But what did she allow God to do? Take those thoughts and do what? Make them obedient to Christ, right? So I have this lady, second example, comes into my office. Her husband has behaved very badly. She's devastated. She walks in. She's staring at me this many years ago, and she says to me, are there any good men in the world? I knew that was not a moment for me to make a case for myself or, any, <laughs> or anyone else. I just looked at her and said, you know, I, I don't know. Now, why is she saying that? Because she's so hurt. But this is a great story. Two weeks later, I have this guy in my office, similar devastating circumstance. Guess what his question was? Yeah, are there any good women in the world? Get this. Over those two weeks, I'd actually worked on my answer a little bit. And I looked at him and I said, there's good women in my world. In my world. Now, here's the great story. This woman was one of my wife's best friends. About two and a half years later, we did the wedding of those two. And eventually, I told them the story. You know, I didn't share it at the wedding, but eventually I told them the story. But in the midst of their hurt, what was their brain telling them? Never trust another man. Never trust another woman. So what did they have to do? They had to submit it to God and let that impulse become what? Obedient to so throughout Romans 8, he keeps touching on things where we feel like we're losing. And he said, you can go along and just feel like, I'm losing, God doesn't care. I'm losing, God doesn't care. He says, hang with me. I'm not abandoning you. I'm groaning with you. I'm hurting with you. Hang with me because we are going to be more than conquerors because I love you and I won't separate myself from you i love you before you started i love you before i made you i love before you figured out what to do with your impulses now here's a fascinating component that i've got to add how many of you grew up in church raise your hand if you grew up going to church i really do want to know if you if you grew up going to church all right one of our sons when he was in first year of high school he was very despondent very, very despondent. And one night, I, I would say he was depressed. And I was trying to dig away out a little bit, try to figure out what was going on. You know, asking him questions, trying to help him open up. And finally, he opened up about his sin. Well, what have we been teaching our kids their whole lives? You know, you're forgiven by the Lord, da-da-da-da-da. You know what I mean? So I venture back down that familiar path right? Talking about how much the Lord loves you, forgives you. He looks at me in tears and he, because I didn't grow up in church, he looked at me and he in tears he said to me, you don't understand I've never committed a sin I didn't know better. Whoa. Okay, I lied. I said, I need to use a restroom. I didn't. But I ran upstairs and I got my wife because she did grow up in church. And I knew she understood what he was feeling. And I brought her back downstairs. And I said, would you tell mom what you just told me? And when he told her, she just 
burst into tears because she did know what he was doing. She remembered being baptized at nine years old and then a few months later sinning and spending about the next 15 years of her life feeling like God was just ticked off at her all the time. She didn't know this. So that night, we opened Romans chapter 5, where, you know, he talks about, you know, the love of God and that God demonstrated his own love in us for this, that while we were still, remember, sinners and powerless and ungodly enemies, God loved us. Do you remember that? Do you remember how that passage ends? If God gave his son for you when you were his enemies, listen carefully, here's the next words. How much more will he save you through his life? And here's the thing. You need to read this on your own. Uh, Romans chapter 5, 6 through 11. He says it twice. How, look for it. How much more? I said, you understand what he's actually saying is, oh, no, 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 no. Back at the event, when I loved you before you were created, if I loved you before you even cared about me, I'm not ticked off with you. How much more do I love you now? Think about if every Christian in the world realized that once you got in the kingdom, God's message to you is, oh, no, 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 how much more? Yeah, but I'm still struggling. How much more? You come to communion. You're not sure if you want to take communion because you don't feel worthy. God looks at you and says, let my spirit talk to you. You're not separated from my love. How much more? Take communion boldly in the grace of Jesus Christ. How much more? You've never been separated from the love of God. Never been separated from the love of God. So I told you about my cussing problem. I'll close with it. I ain't going to cuss. <laughs> so, good grief. I can't even believe you. I'm telling you this, but it's in my notes, so I'm going for it. So I'd done pretty well. You know, I, I told you I was baptized in 81. I'd, I'd, I had done pretty well. You know, with the Spirit's help, you know, Ephesians 4. 29, let no one holds, or, or, uh, yeah, let no one holds the word come out of your mouth. Remember that? I, I'm bearing down on that passage. No obscenities, right? And I'm doing pretty well. I really am. I mean, I, I can tell that the Lord is winning a victory in my life. Until 2007. 2006, 2007. I don't know what happened. But it all came flooding back. I would find myself again driving on the road. Someone cuts me off horrible, filthy language, filling, filling my mind, filling it, okay? Then I would begin to notice, uh, 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 you know, like a few months. You know how sin progresses? So like a few months later, right, I'd find myself, I'm alone in my car, but now I'm yelling these obscenities in my car. I'm thinking, I, I, I mean, my world, it feels like it's coming apart, okay? So in February of that year, we're on our way to a men's retreat, Friday afternoon, Five o'clock traffic. I'm sitting in a turn lane. Remember, I told you I had a bunch of kids, big old van. Guy behind me can't see that the person in front of me won't move. The light's green, but this person isn't going. They're probably scared. I can't do anything about that. But the guy behind me is so mad, leaning out his window, screaming obscenities at me because he thinks I'm the one that isn't moving, right? So finally, the light starts to turn yellow, right? And this guy rams the back of my van. Now, if you, any of you have read about road rage, this is not a good sign. <laughs> 
So now, of course, I'm bumped out in the intersection. I've got to go somewhere, right? So I, I don't want this conversation or confrontation. I pull up onto Spalding. When I do, he cuts back into traffic and takes off. Now, here's what you don't know. I was on the phone with one of our members leaving a message on his answering machine when this happened. And my lizard brain said what I won't say now because I gave a colorful description of how I felt about the circumstances. And I'm dead serious. Here's what happened. He hit me. I cannot believe it. And I did say what I said. And I looked down at my phone and I'm like, and I actually threw my phone. Oh, my goodness. And then I'm like, oh, my goodness. So I pick it back up. It's still recording. You know how some phones, if you hit a pound three, it'll let you record over? I'm smashing pound three. Nothing's happening. I cannot believe this has happened. Remember I told you we were going to a men's retreat for the church, right? So I get there. I'm a wreck. I keep trying to call Tom and Edie. Tom and Edie. I can't get a hold of them. I can't get a hold of them. I can barely sleep that night. Next morning, my phone rings. It's Tom's wife, Edie. Hey, good morning, man. I, I saw you tried to call us a lot last night. And uh, I'm sorry, we were out. His, her husband was a coach, and they were up in Rome, Georgia. And said, I'm really sorry. Uh, what can I do for you? I said, Edie, have you, have you listened to your messages yet? Oh, no, no, I mean, it was late. We got in. What would be the chances of when you come to mine? You just hit delete. <laughs> and she said, no chance now. <laughs> no! Oh, I can't believe it. So, of course, I feel horrible. I explain it all like I just explained to you. Ugh. Next day at church, I, I tell the whole story at church, you know. and it, it is what it is, right? Well, everyone's laughing but me. Because I knew the darkness in my heart. I'd been dealing with it for months. I felt horrible. I was in a men's Bible study at the time. Every Monday morning at 6 o'clock. We had this assignment. Uh, I think it was at the end of March. Where you were supposed to kind of write out what was really killing you. What was really wiping you out. Where you were not having victory. And of course, you know, I write all this out. And then you were supposed to talk to someone about it. <sighs> So first week of April, I called my dad. And I told him everything I just told you. But I'm not laughing, you know, because I'm so hurt by this backward movement in my life. And I said, first of all, I said, have you ever dealt with anything like this? He said, oh, yeah, of course. What? I'm not alone? No. And I said, Dad, what do I do? What do I do? He said, well, let me think about it. Now, my dad was famous for letter writing. I've got a big box of letters that he had written me all through my life. So in June of 2007, about what would that be? Maybe about seven or eight weeks later, I get a letter from him, an eight-page handwritten letter. And in the letter, this is what he said. About what you called me about, he said, I understand your problem. You're not living effectively with God you're living functionally you're doing the things you think he wants you to do but you're not living 
affectionately with them anymore. He said when the people of Israel got married, they'd give them a year off of military and all those things. He said, you know why? It was so they could learn to live affectionately with each other. He said, you need to go back and learn how to live affectionately with God. So I thought about worship. I thought about Bible study. And I would start saying to him, Lord, I love you. And I realized throughout part of the summer, I was making no headway. And then I simply changed it in the middle of the summer. Lord, you love me. You see, what I was trying to do was I was trying to fix it from my end. And it needed fixed from his end. He's the one that first loved me. And he's the one that loves me still. So then I'd come to worship. Let me hear your love today. Let me learn your love today. Let me feel your love today. Guide me in your love today. In the midst of my sin, let me hear your voice of love. In the midst of my heartaches, let me hear your voice of love. And I find myself today living affectionately with God. And so when I look out at the streets and I see the tsunami of hate, there's no way it can win over the love first of God. When I look at my own life and I experience self-hate, no way it can win over the tsunami of the love of God reversed. God's love is more powerful. It's stronger than any force in the world. It's God's love that is the key to healing gender problems, racial problems, economic problems, internal problems, external problems. Everything we're facing in the world today has one singular answer. And that is the love of Father, thank you for what you've done to us, through us, and for us. Help us, Father, to feel and to experience your love in those impulsive moments where we feel like we, we can't even get up, we can't even look up. Help us to realize that we're surrounded in love in the darkest moments and the lowest moments. That it's not love beaming in remotely from somewhere else. It's love that joins us in the midst of our uncleanness. Love that joins us in the midst of our heartache. Lord, love that joins us in the valley of the shadow of death. It's love that sits with us as we long for the return of the prodigal. You are love. And you, love first. And for that we praise you. In the name of Jesus. Amen.